Good morning, everybody. Just to say I've been sat on the front here, not because I'm trying to preside over things, but because we were running out of seats in the in the room here. So Malcolm asked if I'd if I'd sit up here. Um, we're going to be looking at Romans 8, uh, which Brian very helpfully read to us earlier. Um, and so it'd be useful if you had that open in front of you now. And I'm going to um, start this this morning with um, what is probably one of the most difficult questions to answer in the Christian life. Um, I, I won't call it the most difficult, but it's certainly one of the most difficult. The question is, why does God send good people to hell? Why does God send good people to hell? And the question is not difficult because it's a mystery. It's not difficult because it's hard to answer in the sense that we don't know what the answer is. We don't know what the reason is. The reason, in one sense, is really quite simple. The answer couldn't be simpler. The reason God sends good people to hell is because they're not actually good. The reason is sin. But the question remains difficult because you know, as well as I know, that there are many, many millions of people in this world who are good people, who love their families, who are engaged and committed in their communities, who are generous with their possessions, who are gentle with their words, who are respectful in their neighbourhoods, who could, in all fairness, be described as good people. Perhaps not righteous, but good people. And yet, because those people do not know Christ, their eternal destiny is death. To suffer punishment for their sin. The eternity of hell at the hands of a God of justice. Why is it that God works in this way? Now, no matter how full your theology gets, no matter how competent you are at being able to answer the questions of the skeptic, you must realise that this question will always be difficult to answer. No matter how practised you are at reciting your response, it will always be a difficult question to answer. Because the people behind this question, those good people who face that sort of eternity, are not just the nameless millions who live in countries that you will never even visit. The people in this question are here amongst you. They're your friends and your family and your neighbours, the people that you work with. Perhaps even your children, your parents, your spouse, perhaps. These are the people that the question deals with. And because of the eternal state that, that, it, that it calls upon them, this question is always going to be a difficult one to answer. And so I start by saying, although I'm going to try and address this question, I, I'm not really going to be able to answer it in the sense that you will have this cute little one-liner that you can uh, reel off to people whenever this question comes up in conversation. I'm going to address this question, but perhaps not fully answer it for you. Instead, I want to try and unpack that simple part of the answer. That The simple part of the answer is, remember, sin. Sin is the problem. I want to look more closely at what sin is. And by doing so, I hope I will be able to show you that this question, difficulty, difficult as it is, it need not be a reason for your faith to fail. It need not be a question that demolishes your faith. And also by looking at this part of the answer, I hope it will give you reason to uh, act against the problem of sin in your own life. That's what we aim to do this morning. So what is sin then? 
That's what I want to start by thinking about. Why does God send good people to hell? Well, I've turned to Romans chapter 8, verse 6, because, um, well, I've turned to Romans 8, because in verse 6, Paul gives us the answer that we're looking for. And he's not using precisely the same language, but, but let me show you uh, how it answers our question. In verse 6, in my version, it says, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. Do you see how this fits the question that we're asking? We're asking, why does God send some people to hell and some people to heaven? And Paul is answering, gone, uh, some people are in a place of death and some people are in a place of life and peace. Now, granted, the death and the life and peace that Paul is talking about in Romans 8, in, in the way he's arguing, that death and that life start now. They're here today. But the result is uh, that it gets you to the place of eternal death or eternal life. And so Paul is dealing with, with us then that these two groups of people, some who will end up in the place of death, hell, some who will end up in the place of life and peace, heaven. And what is the difference between them? Well, verse six, the difference between them is not that some people are bad and some people are good. You need to get that out of your head straight away. That's not the difference that causes uh, the different uh, end, uh, end place for these groups of people. The difference is who they are controlled by. Verse six, the mind of sinful man is death. Or the footnote, the mind controlled by the sinful nature. And that fits with what's going on in verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature. It's those who are controlled or governed or guided by their own sinful nature. Or in some versions, the flesh. Perhaps if you've got an ESV or King James or even I think the new NIV. Instead of using ideas of sinful nature and spirit, it talks about flesh and spirit. And you will have seen that comparison all the way through the chapter that we read. What is this comparison that Paul's making? Flesh versus spirit. Well, the temptation is when you hear of those two categories, flesh versus spirit, maybe he means oh, physical. This is my flesh, isn't it? It's physical versus uh, spirit. Well, that must be spiritual. But that's not what Paul is really getting at in this comparison. And that's why this version of the text has chosen to use sinful nature instead of Flesh to emphasize the point that it's not it's not the physicality of your body that is the problem, but it's your sinful nature, your natural condition. And so to think about flesh versus spirit is is better seen as your natural birth versus your new spiritual birth. That's the, the contrast that Paul is setting up in this chapter. And he's saying, look, if you are controlled by your natural sinful nature. If you continue in the in the state in which you were born, then the result is that you become, verse seven, an enemy of God. The sinful mind is hostile to God or in some versions, it results in enmity towards God. Now, this is crucial to our whole understanding of the question. What is sin? Sin makes us enemies of God. Why does sin make us enemies of God? Well, one reason, verse seven, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. In other words, you're an enemy of God because you break God's law. Every person breaks God's law. And this is not hard to convince people of. You you go through the Ten Commandments and ask people, have they ever broken these commandments? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever dishonored your parents? Uh, Have you ever been greedy? 
Have you ever acted out of self-interest rather than out of the interest of the other? Have you ever said an unkind word in an argument that you regretted later? Have you ever been greedy? Have you ever been lazy? There are all sorts of ways to show people that they have broken God's law. It would be hard to find a person so arrogant to say that they have never done any sin. These imperfections, they might respond, are just part of human nature, aren't they? They seem to be wired into us. Well, yes, that's exactly what Paul's saying. The sinful nature makes you an enemy of God. You don't have to teach these things to your children. You teach them out of your children. But does that really make us an enemy of God? Does that really make us hostile towards God? Just because I break some of his laws every now and again, does that mean I'm I'm hostile to God, really? Is that the right word to use to describe my condition? Surely those who are hostile to God, surely the, the enemies of God are only really those who are breaking the big sins, like murder and, and adultery. Surely they're the enemies of God. But, you know, in, in James chapter 2, verse 10, there's an interesting verse that says, look, even if you keep the whole of God's law, but stumble at just one point, you are guilty of breaking all the laws. Why is that? You might think it's because maybe there's some hidden link between all the all the laws that God has given. If you break one, you uh, in some way have also broken the other. But the reason James gives in his letter is because not because of a link between the laws, but because it's the same God who has given every law. And so to to sin is to break God's law. To sin is to reject God's rule on your life. And so if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. If you fall at one point, you break the whole law because you reject the one who gave the law. And so each and every time we sin, we prove ourselves to be enemies of God. We reject the one who has given us his law. And God does not wink at sin. He does not brush it out of the way. He does not ignore it. But he will act in justice. But another reason that we're counted as enemies of God is because our, our, we're enemies of God, not just as a result of our law breaking, but actually the fact that we are enemies of God is the cause of our law breaking. Uh, the sinful nature does not submit to God's law, but secondly, nor can it do so. Verse seven. And I think this is really what Paul is trying to drive home in this chapter. At root, if you want to know what sin is, if you want to know what our natural condition is, it's not just that we will inevitably break God's law one day because there are so many of them and because we've got so many opportunities. And so inevitably we will fail at some point. That's not what Paul's saying about sin. What Paul's saying is sin is so wired that it causes you to look for opportunities to break God's law. You prefer to break God's law rather than keep God's law. We're enemies of God by nature, not just by consequence. And over the years, as people have tried to summarize what sin is and teach the church, what are we talking about when we talk about sin? Is there is there one particular sin which is at the root of all other sins? Is there one little word that we could give to describe sin in general? They've come up with, with different ideas. Some describe it as pride. 
Look, at the root of every sin is pride. It's to say, um, I am in charge. I will have no God over me. I choose my own destiny and I will not be directed. Others describe sin as unbelief. As though, yes, I've heard what God's law is, but I'm not interested in it. Either I don't really believe that God is there, or I do not believe that this instruction is good for me, or I don't believe that his promises about judgment are really true. Unbelief. And so I act in sin, I break the law. It's why Luther described the sin as the self turned in on itself, curved in on itself. I will do anything to anything other than have God over me. Every act that I do is done in order to serve self. And it's why the New Testament so often calls sin a power, an influence. You see, sin is not just a a synonym for disobedience, the times that we eventually break the rule. Sin is the influence that causes us to reject God at a very heart level. Now, if you look at many people in the world, you can see how if this is what sin is, this this um, this rejection of God at root, you can see how that results in the sorts of egotistical, narcissistic, proud, greedy ways of living. Because their rejection of God and their pride in the face of God spills out into their relationships with other people. And it makes them, quite frankly, nasty people. And I'm sure you've come across people who, who have tendencies uh, in that sort of way. But, you know, sin needn't necessarily result in such an abhorrent lifestyle. If sin is at root a rejection of God, if that's what it is, then can't you see that a person can be entirely sinful, entirely controlled by the sinful nature, and yet still live an outwardly good life? They could be generous with their possessions towards other people. They could be loving and committed towards their family. They could be gentle with their words. They could be patient with people that they meet, but they do it all, who for? For themselves. If they're living in that way, that can still be sin that's driving them to do it. And and every act of their life can be done from that position of sin. And from a, a rejection of God, I will not have anything to do with God in my life. I don't need God to be a good person, they might say. I will live in a way that I see fit. And their lives will look like they are good people. They will certainly be respectable. But their every action, every motive, every deed is from a place of sin, from from a rejection of God. They do it because this will make my life better. I have been taught that this is the best way to live. And my experience is, because this is the way God has designed the world, when we act in this way, yes, things do go better for us. And that's exactly what sin is. I will have nothing of God. I'm living in a way that God doesn't really matter. This is all just about me. I'm going to act in a way that I see fit. And so ultimately, Paul concludes, verse 8, Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. If that's what sin is, if you're controlled by the sinful nature, you cannot please God. Now, don't push verse 8 further than it's intended. It's not that nothing any unbeliever ever does can ever be pleasing in God's sight. Actually, there are a number of occasions within the scriptures where unbelievers are commended for the good work they do. 
You see in the book of Acts, for example, unbelievers being commended for their hospitality towards the apostles. But no matter what good actions a person might do, they never get past the fact that they, as an individual, are living in rejection of God. They've turned their back upon God. That's what sin really is. The parable of the prodigal son that Jesus taught is it gives a helpful example of sin in action here. In the parable, you've got the older son and the younger son. And the younger son, as we all know, asks for his father's inheritance and runs off to a far distant country and squanders it in wild living. But what is the older son doing? The older son stays at home and in his own words, he is slaving away, never breaking your commands. Now, that is comparable to a person who lives an outwardly decent life, an outwardly good life. In fact, in the in the way Jesus is telling the story, it's comparable to those who live very religious lives, the Jewish leaders that he's speaking against. But where does the obedience of that son get him? Where does the, the, the good life get them? Does it cause them to love the father? Does it strengthen their relationship with him? Are they able to share in the father's joy at the return of the younger son? No, because what the what the older son is doing is he's acting purely out of self-interest. He's acting purely for himself rather than out of a love for his father. And his intention actually is just the same as the intention of his brother. He wants all of his father's riches without anything of the father himself. And the parable ends on a note of ambiguity. Is the son reunited with the father is the older son reunited with the father or has his rejection of the father gone on for so long at such close quarters that that breach is impossible to restore look if we're going to answer this difficult question of why god sends good people to hell we need to understand the simple part of the answer we need to understand that sin is far more than just a problem of disobedience to what perhaps might be described by an unbeliever as an arbitrary set of rules that God pitches against us. Sin is so much more than just disobedience to a set of rules. The problem of sin is a continued and persistent rejection of God at the level of the heart. Now consider those people that you know who fit that idea of the unsaved but good person. And think about how they respond when you bring up Jesus Christ with them. Not just that Jesus as a person, but the need for each and every individual to submit to Jesus Christ, to repent of sin, to trust in him. How do people respond when you have those sorts of conversations? Often it's one of disdain. I I just don't need. Why do I need Jesus to be good? My life is good enough as it is. I'm not interested. Stop preaching at me. A better response, perhaps, might be one of apathy. Yes, it all sounds very nice, but that's just for you. It's not for me. You keep that to yourself. And even if people are interested in Christ, so often they're unwilling to accept him as he is revealed in the word. They're unwilling to accept the fullness of what Jesus calls us to. And that holds true for many, many other faiths around the world. People who make a really good show of trying to seek God and even do a good job of obeying his commands in various ways. 
But in the end, actually, they want nothing of Christ. They don't want God at all. Now, the, the biblical picture is nothing like the caricature that is implied in the question. The question is, why does God send good people to hell? The caricature implies, here's this huge mass of people, the population of the globe, and everybody is almost equal. We're reasonably good to one another. And God is the the angry God who is arbitrarily sending some people off to an eternal uh, punishment and drawing some people towards him just because of a few words uh, that some of those people have said at one time. But actually, the biblical picture paints a very different view. The biblical picture is not that you've got this huge mass of people who are really quite good. The biblical picture is you've you've got the whole population who live as enemies of God, who want nothing to do with him. Who, who would prefer, actually, to turn their backs on him and to lose all of his goodness rather than bow the knee to him. And God the Father makes this invitation. Uh, and he says, would you return to me? Would you know me? Here is eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, says Jesus. And here is the vision of heaven. When the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven like a like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and a voice comes from heaven saying, now the dwelling place of God will be with men. God will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. That's what makes heaven so heavenly, not just the riches of the father, but the father himself. And God makes this invitation. Not to people who are seeking him, but to people who for all their lives have rejected him, who have hated him, who have turned their backs on him, who would rather have hell than him. Why would it be that a person who for all their life has lived in rejection of God would suddenly at the point of death flip and decide actually to be with God is a much better prospect? The biblical picture is not the caricature of God angrily flinging people off into an eternity of punishment. The biblical picture is the father opening out his invitation and saying, come, won't you come? Won't you know me? Won't you share in my goodness and my love? Won't you have real fellowship with me? Won't you be free from the power of sin that controls you? Won't you come? And the world says, no, I'm not bothered. I'd rather go my own way. How do we deal with the problem of sin? I want to address that question before we finish. Perhaps this morning you've realized more fully what sin is. You've realized that although your life outwardly might look comparable to even the most revered Christian. Actually, at the level of your heart, you know that there is so much sin. So much of what you do is done not out of a love for God, not out of a a desire to know him and to serve him but out of a desire to please and serve yourself. How do we deal with sin? The answer cannot be stop sinning. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? The, The problem is sin. The answer cannot be stop sinning. Why? Because you have got no power to stop sinning. Sin, as we said, is not just the the breaking of the law in the end. Sin is The heart rejecting God, the heart looking for opportunity to turn from God. And what happens is if you apply an answer like stop sinning, 
you, you had all sorts of rules onto your life. Don't do this. Don't do this. Go there. Say this. Pray these prayers. Read these books. You make all these rules and instructions and barriers around your life. And what does it do? It only gives sin more opportunity to say, ha, ah, there's, there's another command of God that I can break. There's another way I can be disobedient. There's another way I can wriggle free from the influence of God on my life. And Paul in Romans 7 was saying, look, I wouldn't have even known what coveting was unless the law had come to me and said, do not covet. But when it came, then sin was there. Fantastic. Now I'm going to covet. Because that's another opportunity to reject God and his claims on my life. The answer to sin cannot be to add more instructions. What you need is not another instruction. What you need is another mind. What you need is another nature. A nature that is not an enemy of God, but a nature that is led by God. And so speaking to believers in verse nine, he makes this contrast. He says, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. You're not being controlled by this desire to reject God. You're actually being controlled by, wow, the spirit of God. He's given to me to live within me, to to renew my mind, to change my heart so that the disposition of my heart would not be to turn away from God, but actually to turn towards him. Teach me, Father. Show me your way. Help me to repent of sin. Help me to root it out in my life and help me to live in a way that pleases you and brings you glory. Because that's why I was made. And that is the path to goodness and to satisfaction and to know my value. If you see your own sin, if you see the tendency in your own life to to reject God, no matter how hard you've been trying to live in an outwardly good way, no matter how successful you might have been at that. If you see your own sin, your own rejection of God, won't you realize that the only way to be free from sin is for you to be given not a new instruction, but a new heart? And if you see that, won't you turn to Jesus Christ? Won't you allow yourself to belong to him in the language of verse nine? Not just knowing about him, but but to belong to him, to give your life to him. Jesus, all I am, all that I have, all that I, all that I know, all that I want to do is now yours. And won't you dwell in me by your spirit? Renew my heart. Give me this new nature by your spirit. And what you will find when you do that is that Jesus not only cleanses you of guilt. He doesn't only wash away the guilt of all the past sin, all the wrong things you've done in the past. He also frees you from the power of sin. You be, begin to live a life that is led by his spirit, changing your heart's desire, making you a child of God, verse 14. And on this point. For believers, you need to realize that the Christian life is not just a case of saying a prayer in your teenage years, getting baptized, receiving the ticket to heaven, and then just riding out the rest of your days waiting for it to happen to you. That could not be further from the reality of what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is a life that is led by the Spirit. Every moment of every day we're seeking to make to be in submission to God, in service to him. And while it is true that, yes, sin will still remain. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, your body, 
look, your body is still dead because of sin. The influence of sin is still there. But your spirit has been given a new life. Your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And therefore, jump into verse 12 now, therefore, you've got an obligation. Not to live according to the sinful nature. You've got an obligation to turn your back on the sinful tendencies of your heart. And you've got an obligation to submit to the guiding of the spirit. How does the spirit guide you? Well, one way is he he does it internally. He, He guides you by your conscience. He changes your thinking and your ambition. He does it in a way that you you perhaps don't even see or realize. That's one way the spirit works, but it's not the only way. The spirit speaks to you through the word. And so if you've got an obligation to to live in step with the spirit, you need to be finding ways to, to make yourself submit to God's word. I don't know how you can do that without reading it regularly. I don't know how you can do that without using uh, music or or sermons or uh, thinking about ways in which the Bible impacts your life regularly so that you are submitting to the influence of the spirit. You can allow yourself to be led by the spirit. And I don't know how you can do it without being part of the church, because it is in the church as believers gather together that the spirit is there amongst us. The spirit speaks through the preaching of God's word. The spirit is here amongst us as we gather together to worship. And when you try and tackle those besetting sins as a Christian. You need perhaps there might be times when the the, the instant reaction. Here's this sin in my life that that is just getting me is catching me off my guard so many times. How am I going to deal with it? How am I going to respond? How am I going to be free from its power? You might have to make Actions which sever yourself from that sin. Get rid of your smartphone. Get rid of your TV. Get rid of uh, whatever it is that's putting you in the position where you find this sin falling upon you so often. You might have to make drastic actions. But realize that if that's all you do, then you've only touched the outward side of things. You've not really dealt with the heart. And you might change your actions. You might change your habits in that way. But if you've not dealt with the heart issue the heart will find another way for that sin to spring to spring up in future. And so when you are tackling besetting sins as a Christian, what you need to do is not just deal with the outward action, the, 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 the result of the sin. What you need to do is be led by the Spirit. And what will the Spirit be doing? Well, if, if the sinful nature is making you an enemy of God, the Spirit will be teaching you how to love God. The Spirit will be showing you how to love Christ more. And the real aim in tackling your sins is to is to love Christ more than you love the sin. Because it's that love of sin that is that is pulling you down all the time. And it is as the spirit teaches us to love Christ more that we will be lifted up out of that sin. We have an obligation not to live according to the sinful nature, but to live According to the spirit, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God. Show themselves to be sons of God in reality.